Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Crazy Money. This is Paul Ollinger. Why do I laugh when I make that introduction? Well, because by the time you hear the final version of this introduction, I've done it about 47 times into a microphone. Hey, today's a great day to be alive, and I'm happy you're here with me. Our episode this week is about immigration and the American dream. My guest is my friend Gianni Lee Nguyen, who was a refugee from Vietnam who arrived in the United States at the age of six in the early 1980s after spending a couple of years in refugee camps in Hong Kong and the Philippines. Johnny's father smuggled her and her sister, her little sister Leitu, out of Vietnam by wrapping them in a fishing net in the middle of the night and rowing a basket boat out to a larger boat where they spent the next several days on an overcrowded vessel that was set upon by pirates who took everything that Johnny's dad had and the boat was very, very crowded, and sickness almost prevented Gianni from making it to the refugee camp in the first place. You'll hear the rest of her story. But it really got me thinking of her experience and the experience of so many people like her and what impact that has had both on their personal relationship with money but also on the economy of the United States of America. According to Wikipedia, which we all know is unadulterated fact, so please treat the next few words as respectfully as you should. About 2 million Vietnamese fled Vietnam between 1975 and 1995. Many of them made their way to the United States where they have made a real home for themselves. Think about these words from Pew Research. Asian Americans are the highest income, best educated, and fastest growing racial group, should probably say groups, in the United States. They are more satisfied than the general public with their lives, finances, and the direction of the country, and they place more value than other Americans do on marriage, parenthood, hard work, and career success, according to a comprehensive new nationwide survey by the Pew Research Center. A century ago, most Asian Americans were low-skilled, low-wage laborers crowded into ethnic enclaves and targets of official discrimination. Today, they are the most likely of any major racial or ethnic group in America to live in mixed neighborhoods and to marry across racial lines. When newly minted medical school student graduate Priscilla Chan married Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg last month, she joined, though this is a few years old, obviously, she joined the 37% of all recent Asian American brides who wed a non-Asian groom. I don't know why we got to work a Facebook reference in there, Pew, but so you did. Well, my friend Gianni is one of those 37% also. She married a, uh, a white dude named Brian. Could there be a whiter name than Brian? Sorry, dude, your name's pretty white. Anyway, she married my good friend, Brian, and they have an all-American family. They have four kids who live in a beautiful home in San Diego, and they have worked very hard to create a successful life for themselves. Immigration is in the news a lot lately, and you know, while a whole bunch of people aren't talking about what the policy should be, they just kind of rant about, man, all these people are coming here, or everybody should be allowed. It's a free, free country. Come on in. <laughs> It's got to be, we've got to have a, a policy that's more informed and sustainable and long range. And I just thought it was really interesting to talk to Gianni about her experience and how that informs how she feels about money and financial security and the current American work ethic and our immigration policy. So I think it's a timely interview and I hope you enjoy it. This is Gianni Lee Nguyen. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. 
This is not a podcast about how to make a million bucks, how to beat the stock market, or how to save money by switching cable providers. It's about how we think about and live with money as a society and as individuals. It's about the choices we make that lead us toward or away from happiness. Welcome to Crazy Money. Gianni Lee Nguyen. Am I saying that correctly? Yes. Nguyen? Yes, Win. 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 Win, not Nguyen. Actually, the real pronunciation is Nguyen, but since... I can't, I can't make my mouth right, do that. So Win is pretty good. Gianni Lee Win. Fantastic. I've only known you for 19 years. Not long enough. Welcome to Crazy Money. For the few people in the crowd here, we're coming at you live from the San Diego Comedy Festival. Not live, live to tape at the San Diego Comedy Festival. There are a handful of comedians in the room. So my podcast, Crazy Money, is a podcast that exists to help people understand how their personal connection to money helps them make better decisions to live a happier life. And what I'm fascinated with is how the stories of our youth and our families inform what we want from money as adults, what careers we've gotten into, et cetera. And so Johnny has an extraordinary backstory and I want to share it with you and with the listeners of this podcast. Johnny. Yes. How old were you when you came to the United States of America? I was uh, five going on. It was a six. Six. How did you get here? Well, it's a long story. Some of you may have remember reading about the boat people in the late 70s or early 80s. I was one of those boat people. We escaped our country in Which the middle country? of the night, uh, Vietnam. Escaped Vietnam in the middle of the night on a boat. We live on the sh- near the shore, so it made it easier, but the boat that we originally got into is actually a basket, about seven feet in diameter. My father snuck my sister and I in a fishing net and put us in this basket, then row it out to a boat that was uh, probably about a quarter miles out at sea. Mm. And that boat is, I want to say, about 25 to 30 feet in length at most. Could probably fit comfortably 15 people, but we had a little over 30 because when we were at sea, people were just begging and asking to come. So my dad just, people just kind of piled in. How long were you on that boat? We were on that boat for five days and four nights. It's a long five days and four nights because... Where was it supposed to be going? We went to where it was supposed to go. We were going from Da Nang to um, Hong Kong. Uh, We stopped on an island along the way, and after that stop at the island to get fresh water we were pirated what does that mean so it means there's pirates at sea they stop your boat and they take everything you have on your boat so that's what kind of happened to us tell me about that well i don't remember much of it other than a lot of loud noise commotion guns knives a lot of my dad handed over this box which had everything he's ever owned all his paperwork all the jewelry, just everything that he had brought from from our, from his home city, country, and handed over, and with the hope that uh, in exchange, everyone's lives would be saved, and that did happen. I mean, my dad was not the only one who handed over everything everyone else did, too, supposedly. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what you were eating and drinking on the boat? Oh, I, I tell you this, it's a little embarrassing, but I to go to the bathroom on a boat this size, you put your bottom over the edge of a boat, so... I fell into the ocean, and... Like that got a laugh from a bunch yeah. of comedians in there. Comedians love tragedy. You're going to get a lot of laughs today. <laughs> and uh, my father dove in to take me out of the Pacific Ocean, but um, by the time he'd, he'd done so, I was 
I drank a lot of water, was sort of on the verge of dying. Um, so the last two days of my trip was kind of a blur, but just remember, you know, the passenger saying, your daughter dies, you need to throw her over the board, she's going to oh. be contagious to the rest of the boat. And so, they, you know, it's a lot of it because they don't know. They see this kid, she's sick, and I'm just throwing up, and my fevers were high. So the, the only thing I remember telling my father is if I, you know, if something happened, please don't let them throw me into the ocean. That was sort of my, my plea to my father. And, you know, we, we made it to the shores of Hong Kong um, in the middle of the night. I remember because I remember seeing city lights from afar and being extremely happy that we saw city lights. But um, that was just the start of the journey. When you landed in Hong Kong, where did you go? We landed on, in Hong Kong. We stayed on the cement pier for about three or four days until they can process all of us. Where are you sleeping on that pier? On the cement pier with You're a just tarp. sleeping on the pier? With on the, the pier. With a tarp. With a tarp over Comfy. us. Yep, very comfortable. The smell of the sea was very comfortable. And then uh, my father had lost all his paperwork, although he had served in the American, we call it the American War, and here we call it, you know, in the Vietnam, and in the States they call it the Vietnam War. He had uh, fought for the South, which is also the side the American was... Um, was helping with, and we lost, and as a result, you know, here we are. What year was this? Um, now, when, well, we, when we left was, uh, now we're about 1980, 81. So this is several years after the war had, yes. after, after the United States had exited Right, Vietnam. so when the U.S. had exited Vietnam, my father had an opportunity to leave. Um, he had been injured in the war, lost, and he has uh, an amputated leg or foot. At the time, his family was not near him, so he decided that he, you know, he was not going to try to escape. Then, he waited until, until uh, the right time for him. So it took him a while to plan the escape. I mean, it took me think about it. Don't emigrate until you have a couple of daughters you have to carry with you. <laughs> That makes makes bailing on the communists a lot easier. Yes, absolutely. It makes makes the journey more exciting. Okay, so you're sleeping on a pier in Hong Kong for three or four days because your dad's lost his paperwork. Right, and they, you know, I'm sure we were not the only boat people that landed in in the Hong Kong bay or during that week, even that month. So there has to be some kind of an area where they have to process all these refugees that are coming through. And that was just what happened with my journey. After that, they stuck us in this area. It had what, you know, what I learned later to be about only 12 to 15 feet concrete wall with barbed wires on top enclosed in this area with just, it's just like a warehouse building kind of thing. And inside this warehouse building were Bunk beds stacked four beds high in each family assigned to, for us, a single bunk. So it's like, imagine a single bunk bed, and here you have a father, I mean, a, a man, and my father at the time was like 26, 27 years old, and a two-year-old kid and like, you know, a four-and-a-half, five-year-old kid. So a lot of, some of the guys here are, I'm sure, around 27 or in your 20s or 30s. Just imagine doing that and going on that journey. Roommates. <laughs> we were, it was, my father was my roommate. How long are you in this, and how many people are in this warehouse or, or oh, the, the large barrack? I want to say hundreds. Hundreds because, remember, it's bunk beds stack fours, single bunk beds. And above us is a family, below us is family, above that is a family. So right. it's a lot of people. And how do you 
how do you clean yourself in this environment? So you have this sort of water area where you go to, and my father would just, you know, there's running water, and there's a cup or, or a pitcher of some sort, and he would just, like, rinse us or wash us. And it was kind of like public bathing kind mm-hmm. of area. I mean, it's really no privacy. I mean, I don't know how the women bathe because I wasn't paying attention. I was just mm-hmm. with my father. But, yeah, it's... Um, so your sense of privacy at this age is non-existent non-existence but i don't think my for me it was about survival it was never about privacy when you when you come from that kind of environment and you have to f- kind of fight your way to to get to i don't even know where i was going i just know that it's probably hopefully it's better than where i came from and does it really matter if i see someone naked probably i didn't have any sense of privacy to be honest what are you eating what what is your daily caloric intake consist so, of Refugee camps, you kind of line up two meals a day. You have this tray where they kind of just like think of military where they just kind of, you're lining up and you're walking through this line and they're just kind of giving you scoops of all sorts of whatever food it was. It was never, for us it was enough because we were tiny. I mean, my sister and I were malnutrition, so although we were four and a half and two and a half, we probably looked like a one and three-year-old easily. Like the sense of, uh, for me during that time being in there, I felt a, a strong sense of, like unfairness, sort of like inequality, like just like someone's taking something from me or within had, the camp or overall. When, when like I was from in the camp, when I well, no, when I was in the camp, I didn't know nothing anything about global. I just know what at that age. I mean, at that time, I just knew what impacted me, like right then and there. And for me, it was so give me an example of that. So my sister, who was two and a half, three years old, really wanted a piece of candy. This woman is a passenger my, on the boat, and she had candy for some reason. I don't, I don't know where. And so, you know, my sister would never say anything. She'd just look at that candy, that piece of candy. Like, just look. She wouldn't take her eyes away from that piece of candy. She just kept looking. So I asked the woman if I can have a piece of candy for my sister. Not necessarily for myself. She said, she flat out said no. And I, I told her that, well, you were on the boat, and, you know, my father helped save you. And I sort of, like, kind of, you know, as young as I did, kind of told her, like, it's not fair. Like, can, why can't you just give me a piece of candy? Yeah. And she just said no. And she said, well, you know, I'm kind of smarter than your father. You know, I, I, she found a way to hide money or to hide stuff from the pirates. And it, to me, I was really upset. I was really upset that she insulted my father. I was really upset that, that I couldn't get what I wanted from my sister. So a few days later, we were walking and we were playing because, you know, my father had to always be doing something. And there's this sort of hole on the bottom of one of the cement walls and... I saw a dog went underneath it, and so I took my sister, and we both went underneath it. On the other side are these barrels of, just barrels. Turns out to be barrels of food. I had my sister on my shoulder, and we looked in, and I learned quickly that wow, this is where they store all the food before they serve them. So, I had her take as much meat as we could possibly carry. We go back to the other side, and I learned really quickly I can barter. I can trade this off for candy for. Later on, I learned I can trade it for cigarettes for my father. Mm-hmm. So this is where I had my first sense of, you know, I can do this. You know, I don't have to. There's, there's a way to survive. And, and my father would always be upset at me because... For what? Well, he was For tricking sh- other people or for stealing? Or what well, was, the, what he, was he his wasn't moral... Sh- I was never really, really... I was never really honest with him how I did it because I didn't want him to, like, stop my source of how I was getting it. So he would ask me, and I would I was telling you, well, you know, I didn't. He goes, did you steal? I'm like, well, no, I didn't steal it from anyone in here. So you know, I would just I'll give him like 
sort of half the truth, but not the full truth. Yeah. And when I start getting him cigarettes, he's like, "Where?" Because cigarettes are really expensive. Like, sure. And so he kept on asking, and then so far I finally told him. And what did he say? He kind of looked at me with sort of like very teary eyes, and he said, "You know, you're gonna get in trouble. I don't want you to get in trouble." And I learned this very early on that when you commit a crime, they'll look at you. The first thing they'll note is your gender followed by your race. So he didn't want, you know, for me to commit a crime and bring down my entire race. So it's a pride thing. Like, mm. on, on the fact that, you know, family pride is a huge thing. He doesn't, doesn't want, doesn't want, you know, bad reputation brought upon to our family name. But he was, you know, he talked to me about it and I pretend to listen. How long were you in the refugee camp? I want to say we were there for about a year and then our next set of refugee camp was in the Philippines. When so did how did you get to the Philippines? On a plane. So Hong Kong is um, is Hong Kong is a is a part of the Philippines is an island. So, so you take a plane to the Philippines, and what what are the conditions you live in there? So conditions in the Philippines are a, a lot better than in Hong Kong. It's uh, you lived in open space. There's no fence, no nothing to gate you in. There are these uh, homes are where like they're elongated buildings and each room is sort of a 10 by 10 room. They divide each room up and then each one is assigned to a family. And so, which is a lot more space than we had before, which is a bunk bed with, with more privacy, mm-hmm. if that's what you want to call it. And, but my father had to be, had to go learn all these different classes. He was, he was, had to take to acclimate for our transition into the U S and while he's doing that, my sister and I are, again, you know, here you have now five and three-year-old. We're left to roam all over this sort of city. And you guys are alone by yourself all day long? All day long, pretty much. I mean, it depends on what, how you count the day, but, you know, eight, nine to three, four. So, like, your school day. And what would you do? <laughs> well, at first we were, you know, because my dad would always ask the neighbors to watch us or stuff like that. So... First, we were just playing tag and doing things like that. And then I wanted to uh, eat something. It's always driven by food, I find out. It's like, I want something because it's always with food. So I took her to the rake, the market, the open, what we equivalent to our farmer's market. All these vendors that would sit there with their baskets of... No Whole Foods in the Philippines in 1982? Um, I don't remember any, but I'll think about it. That's a no. <laughs> Um, so farmer's market, you know, you kind of take whatever your farm produces or whatever your house has and you come out and you sell it. So I'm thinking, I can do this. Only problem is I don't have a farm. But I looked and I learned really quickly all the f- different fruits and vegetables and that are they're selling. So I'm going around and I find that there are wild mints and there are wild basils and there's lemongrass everywhere. I'm just like, so why aren't we picking this? So I would take my sister. We spent half our day picking it and the other half trying to sell it. So I spent my days as a young kid trying to sell things to people. Whether you wanted it or not, I was I kind of just kept selling it to you. Were you scared? I didn't, you know, I, I, I never had a sense of fear. I was, I was, I was fearless. This, this is probably one of the fears that my father had for me because I just so that you would develop into sort of a callous person. No, that I, I had no, like he couldn't scare me if he had tried. Like I just, mm. I was just fearless. You're living with your little sister. Your mom's not there. Mom's not there. Mom's in, She's Vietnam. Back in Vietnam. She's back in Vietnam. We had just had a newborn. Um, my sister was born. 
uh, and it was too big of a risk to bring a newborn and have her cry. My father had drugged us before to wrap us in a fishing net to bring wow. us down, but the drug that he was sold was fake. So half, about a few paths down, I actually woke up screaming when I, they were carrying me down. Wow. And so it was really, it, the risk, you know, the risks are real, and if he was to be caught, you know, best bet is you get sent to, um, to camp, to concentration camp. And the worst case is they can just kill you. Mm-hmm. So the the risk. So for me, like I was really a fearless. I was one of those kids where you like didn't fear any. I didn't fear a person. I didn't fear. I didn't have no fear. Mm. So but that you know that's. So how do you get to the states eventually? Does he get his paperwork cleared up? Got his paperwork eventually cleared up. His uh, distant uncle. Uh, I call him great. Uh, sort of. He's like a very distant cousin to my my uh, paternal grandfather. So sponsor us. We came to the states January of 1983, and my port of entry was Beaverton, Oregon. Mm. It's cold. That's what I remember because we've never seen snow before. We came to my great uncle's house, and there are like 15 other people there in like a two bedroom, a tiny house. We stayed there for about a week before my father didn't want to inconvenient his, you know, his uncle and his wife. And so we moved out into a single car garage with a car parked in there. And where we lived was a, sort of the walkway that you walk between the wall and the car parked. Mm. So it's really cool. You know, so now it's like you know your feb- first beginning of February in, in Oregon State. So how are you eating at this point? What, what I mean. Eating? Are you living off of charity from your dad's relatives? No, we don't have any. My father's not really good at accepting charity in that way. We just eat whatever you know, whatever he was able to to get. He he learned he was very adaptable, extremely extremely bright man. He learned a few things. He learned that for a quarter you can ride a bus. You mm-hmm. can ride a bus until the bus stops. Mm-hmm. So for one quarter, he would get on a bus and he would memorize every road and every street and every single stop this bus took him to. Then he would spend another quarter riding another bus, and he would make sure that every bus he rode on was a different bus. And this is how he mapped the city out. This is how he knew where the parks were. He learned that in America, you can go, there's a mall. You can go walk in the mall, and you don't obligate to buy anything. Mm-hmm. In fact, every Tuesday, this is where we went, KB Toy Stores. Thank you, KB. It's went out of business now. We would go there and play for like 20 minutes, but we were, you know, I can see, I can remember the guy's face, the salesperson's face when we walk in. There goes that man with his two kids. What did that feel like? For me at that time, I was like, I get to play with the toys. The rule is, you know, only the demo toys and I have to put it away neatly. And we did that. We were as happy as can be. So mm-hmm. I didn't feel a sense of shame. Um, I didn't know what shame was, to be honest. He took us to the park. We played at the park. But what was hard and what people don't know is around 10 o'clock at nighttime, my dad was a janitor. There's no babysitter. So my sister and I, we would sit in the corner and... Wait for him while he's cleaning. It's the middle of the night, and my favorite was when he's cleaning in a restaurant because then he we would get to drink the coffee mates on the table, and he will always tell us you can only drink two per person, like mm. two per each mm. of us. But that was like I look forward to that, like like okay, shots when is the restaurant going to be next? Right. Yeah, shots of coffee mates, like a form of milk, and and he would always try to leave like a quarter or something behind for the coffee mate that we would take. Wow, wow. So he has this sort of very strong sense of, he doesn't like to kind of owe anyone anything. So. Honor. He's, he's got a strong sense of honor. He had one. 
You know, he cleaned until three or four in the morning, and I remember it would be really cold. We're coming out, and we're all wrapped up, and we'd get on a bus, and he would take us. We'd go to a field. Right before the sun rises, we're in the field picking whatever was in season. So your dad goes from working as a custodian to, to picking fruit picking, or picking whatever it was. Yes, strawberries, blueberries, daffodils. I can mm-hmm. tell you all the things we picked. And then we would pick until noon, until like past noon, one o'clock, we would go home. Mm-hmm. Take another bus, go home, and then he would wash us. We would take a nap and, you know, make dinner, and the same thing starts again. You, and you're still living in this garage? No, he was, you know, he's really resourceful. Um, we only lived in the garage for, I think it was like a month, six weeks. He earned enough money to then found a two-bedroom apartment, shared with another man, gentleman that he had met who's also a refugee who had two young kids. And so now we're in this tiny 800 square feet, 900 square feet bedroom, I mean apartment in um, Beaverton, Oregon. That's sort of our first, I guess you can call our first home. Mm. When do you enroll in school and what are your impressions of of the other kids when, when you do? I spent my first few months in the States working with my father. I wouldn't say working with my father, more like he's working and I'm watching. I, though I did help him a lot when he's in the field and actually picking things. I think we started school that incoming, that sort of that fall. Because when I started school, I didn't speak a lick of English. My elementary school was called Vos Elementary. I remember vividly because it was a circular building. And there were corridors you would go to, and I was using the boys' bathroom for a little over a month before I realized in America they have separate bathrooms for boys and girls. Mm. So that was interesting. I went to the bathroom one day, saw the word boys on it, was really bothered that they didn't have the word girl on there. Right. Went and tried to communicate to my teacher with as much English as I knew that, you know, they forgot the word girl. And then she walks me down to the next corridor, and there's a word girl. And then I learned, and then I explained why these boys are looking at me, really. Did you feel like an outsider when you started school? Did you know that you were, that you were different? I did, because um, not too many people look like me, mostly Caucasians. I was probably one of the few, if not like another maybe Asian family in my particular grade. Um, I was I was the only Asian, but it didn't you know again I was I was a fearless kid and I had no sense of shame and I have no sense of fear so I would just I'm all about survival I'm like bring it on. You told me an interesting story of one way your dad helped you and your sister learn English. Yes, so the great thing about living in a sort of suburbia little you know town like uh, like Beaverton, Oregon is you have the Mormons. You have the Christians, you have the Catholics knocking on your door. And they knock on with one purpose. They wanted to teach you about the religion, and we're Buddhists. But my father would invite all of them in. It didn't matter. And he learned very quickly that these guys are very patient. So <laughs> polite Mormon kids will just sit there. Yeah, they sit to there, you. they talk, you know. And so the Mormons came twice a week. The Catholics came once a week, and the Christians came once a week. So four days a week, we had one hour of religion. We didn't understand a word they were saying. But what was nice was this good interchange of language. I'm hearing someone speaking English to me, and it's not on a TV. Um, They're teaching me how to read. Um, They're helping with my homework. So that's my father's way of getting me free tutoring. Sundays became very interesting because every single church wants you to go to church on Sunday. My father would tell them. Free well, donuts. Free donuts. That um, on Sunday's the day we learn our, 
my language. So he said, you can take her one day a week, one day a month. So one Sunday we would go to the Catholic church, one Sunday we would go to the Mormon church, and one Sunday we would go to the Christian church, and there's one Sunday where we didn't go to any church. So that was my upbringing for like a few months in terms of religion. So let's fast forward to high school. Yes. Where are you living? What's your family situation? What are you thinking about what it's going to be like to be an adult? I I grew up in San Diego. I grew up in um, City Heights area. So it's the ghetto of San Diego, some would say. Very rough, a very, very rough um, upbringing. I have, uh, I told you my father was was an amputee, mm-hmm. but he was working anyways. Um, which, what kind of work? Was he still doing custodial work? He's just doing, you know, whatever work that he can uh, he can get to sort of like earn a living. Mm-hmm. So random work. And my mother, who had joined us now, and she's the reason actually we moved to San Diego. She couldn't take the weather of Washington State in Olympia because we went from Oregon to Washington then down to San Diego. It was rough. Uh, my mother is not your ideal mom in, by any measure. I didn't get much support, but um, my father made up for a lot of that. I mean, he, he did everything and, and anything for us. He's actually my life, my hero. He's sort of, he's, you know, he's done it all. But being, being brought up, um, coming over the way I did, uh, entering this country the way I did, gave me a, new, a, a lot of appreciation. So in high school, it's, it's you know, it's, um, it's about earning for me. It's about being the best student. It's about trying to get my, trying to do it, you know, the best I can to get myself out of there. It's about being educated. So I did that. I did, I mean. What kind of work did you think you wanted to do when you grew up? Well, when I was in fifth grade and you asked me that question, I wanted to be the president of the U.S. And then later on it's they told me. It's not too late. No, they said you had to be born here. So that became a problem. And oh, then right. I, I had this thing where, you know. Uh, I'll change the constitution. So I had that thought too. Then later on, of course, it's too idealistic. I want to be a lawyer at one point to fight for women's right because I believe I was going to come back to Vietnam and fight for women's right over mm-hmm. there. That that quickly became dim when I realized I didn't really like to learn law in that way. So, But my natural tendency has always been an entrepreneur because my yep. ability is I can see opportunity whenever and wherever. I did that all through... Um, out through high school, in fact, um, I made a lot of money, more money. What than were you doing in high school to make money? A lot, uh, a lot of random things. All legal, of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my first real job in terms of like paying taxes kind of job is I got a job at a chiropractor's office. When I was working there, I realized, dude, this guy's paying me four twenty-five an hour. I'm a receptionist, and I got to go. And the, at that time, San Diego had a high rate of... Um, of immigrants from um, Ethiopia and Somalia. It just didn't like doing what I was doing because it was just... But I realized he's making a lot of money for accidents. Yeah. I learned that he's making... It's a, a rule of thirds. The lawyers make a third. The the victims made a third. And the the attorneys made the other third. So I'm thinking, like, why do I want to make four twenty five an hour? I wonder how much this guy's going to pay me if I kind of, like, brought a patient to him. What did you think of American kids? Ooh. Now, then, or when? Then. What was your impression of, of your classmates? Well, I didn't have your traditional childhood. I was raising kids when I was 11, 12 years old. My sister and brothers were born, and my mom didn't play much of Rose, so I, I had to play the motherly role. So, you know, I show up to tennis practice with two or three kids, so like one-year-old, two-year-old, and three-year-olds there. So it's, I, you know, it's, 
I always thought they were lucky, but I've I've learned very quickly in life to just not complain and to just not whine, just be extremely grateful for what I have because when things get really bad, really, really bad, when I think that's the end of the, nothing can be worse than this, I look down my feet and I, you know, I'm Buddhist. I look down my feet and then I, for a moment that I'm extremely grateful because of the billions of people I'm more fortunate than. Then at that moment, my situation, whatever it may be, doesn't seem so bad. No mm -hmm. matter what it is, no mm -hmm. matter what, there's always someone that I'm better than. I mean, like, you know, that better I'm more off fortunate. Then. Yeah, better off than. <laughs> You're and better then, than a lot of people. Well, but then there's, I mean. but then there's comes a time when, like, I feel so cocky. I'm like, God, I sold that deal and I was so young or I bought my car and I'm like, which kid can do this? And my dad would always like to remind me. And then I look up and I'm like, you know, shoot, all those billions of people are above me too. So, you know, my accomplishments are, are nothing. So are like not much. What, so. Were you motivated to, to find yourself a more stable economic situation, or did you want to prove anything to anybody? What were you, kind of, what was in your head at that time? Ooh, for me, I'm very independent. Mm -hmm. um, money, uh, money to me meant a, a bunch of things. Money to me meant I can, I can help the person I love the most, my father. I can help, I can help him have an easier life. I can help my family. Money to me meant that I can do what I want to do without being told what to do. It provided a freedom for me, a freedom to do things that I otherwise wouldn't have. It provided a capital for me to grow more money from. So money to me meant, you know, it meant all that. It's 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 independence. It's it has a very different meaning than I think most. It was not just going out, you know, being able to spend because I really didn't spend much as a kid. I all, everything I earned, I gave to my father to send back to. Vietnam to help his relatives or to help my immediate siblings right then and there. So it's not, you know, it's not about buying, you know, that ball I want or that car I want. It was never really about that. It was sort of like earning to, to just, it's like, for some reason, I feel a big sense of guilt that I've made it to this country and all these other people somehow did not make it. You know, somehow it's like, it's my obligation to help somehow. Yeah. Yeah, so that sense of guilt is like really ingrained in me. You were very different, and did the customs of I'm trying to figure out how to say this. Well, you told me earlier you never you never let a guy pay for a date. Yes. Why so not? it goes back to that sense of freedom, right? So I would go on dates. I would go out. You know, you can talk to any of my friends that goes way back when. I have a, a problem with having people pay for a meal for me. She would let um, me pay for lunch today. <laughs> and, you know, and it's, I just, I've gone on dates and I've never let a guy pay. The, the worst that happened was we went Dutch and if we did that, that gave me an opportunity to ask a guy out to go out again. Uh, but and did otherwise... did guys out? Were they... It did, but it's also a good filter because if they didn't have that, if they were not strong enough to admit that, hey, a woman can be just as independent, she can pay for what she wants. And... I'm out very outspoken. So if they have an issue with that, our relationship's not going to work out in the first place. So that's a good, you know, for me. I mean, I'm the song, someone who goes to a club and would look across the room and say, I want to buy that guy a drink. And that's what I do. I send guys drinks or I send someone a drink. Yeah, so it's really strange. Some guys took it as a compliment. Others took it as an insult. But those who took it as an insult, we, they're not really in my life. So it's good. Those guys are losers. <laughs> Today... You and your husband, you, know, you came from nothing. Right. You could say that you've lived the American dream in the sense that you, you came here with nothing. 
And today you live in a gorgeous home on top of a hill in San Diego. You have four beautiful children going to great schools. How does that feel? I can tell a lot of people this, that I've been to a lot of countries. I lost count of how many. I want to say over 40 countries. This is one of the only few countries where you can come to if you work hard and you try hard and you just go at it, there is a future, there is a way out of whatever socioeconomic state you're in. And I don't, I don't take the, you know, some people says, oh, you know, I'm, you're a minor, you're, I, I, don't, I don't take those as excuses. I, I don't think that, I think you can be a minor, I'm a minor, I'm, I'm Vietnamese, I'm a, a woman, a, a minority, minority yeah. you know. And you do look I, young. That too, young for my age. But that's because I'm Asian. <laughs> but all that, um, I don't use any of that as an excuse because I think that if you try hard enough, you can get to where you want to go. Maybe the, the path is not the same. Maybe it's a little longer, but I've never given up. I really have never, ever given up. But I also spent my 20s kind of, I've never saw the sun. I worked. I worked. I worked in the startup world. And Paul, you know this. I go to work before the sun rises. I go to come home from work after the sunset. It was not about an eight to five job. It was always about doing it until the work gets done. I took a lot of pride in what I did. And, um, and I just dwell and dwell and dwell until I get it done. And if I didn't know, I would go, I would go into industries where I didn't even know what the industry is about. I would spend hours and days at Barnes and Nobles going in that section and reading and reading until I like make notes and knew about every acronym about it. And then until I come in, I can pitch and I can sound like I know enough to to sell them something to talk about their industry so I never gave up it's just I kept going and going and then the more someone says you don't know something I you know I took it as a compliment because then it makes me want to go and learn about whatever it was that, that they're talking about and I would learn it until I mastered enough or sometimes I purposely learn so I know more than them so I can just go and tell them what's Barnes and Noble yes. I know, it's isn't it unfortunate. So is there an Asian work ethic or is that a gross generalization and uh, xenophobia on my part? There's a very much uh, very much so an Asian work ethic, I think. Um, in the American culture, we are about individualism. We are about making sure we we do well. When that 18 years old happened, you're out. You're trying to like, I'm going to make, I'm going to college, I'm away from my parents, I'm doing this. When you're in the Asian family, it's more about us. You don't make it until your whole family makes it. Mm. So that that's a different mentality to begin with. For me, if it was just me, you know, I wanted to finish college. I wanted to go to New York. I wanted where'd you to, go to. Where'd you go to college? I went to UCLA. Go Bruins. Go Bruins. I wanted to go to New York. I wanted to go to the, you know, be in the stock market. I want to travel the world. I wanted to make it big. I want But my father was my first year in college. My father had terminal cancer, so. It, it, it was uh, one of these things where if I had been really successful, like I, and I am today, but I have been like, if I had a billion dollars, right? It's a lot of money. But if I look back and if my sisters, you know I have four sisters and one brother, mm -hmm. and if any one of them failed or didn't go to college, which to my father was the most important thing that we all were educated, that sense of guilt would eat me. So then... I made the personal choice to stay local. I mean, L.A., you know, not very local, mm -hmm. local but close enough to mm -hmm. help out. Yeah. But if that staying ensures that my entire family and all my siblings make out of college, in which they all did, uh, to top university and stuff, then for me, that is a sense of accomplishment, a sense of wealth that, you know, that I don't think that you find 
a lot in the the Western culture because in the, again, it's all about the self and not the us or the family or the community. So the way we know each other is that you married one of my very good friends from business school. Yes. And before you married him, you made him sign a contract, well, which had a few bullet points on it. But the one I, I'm interested in you sharing is is the family one. Well, I wouldn't call it a contract. When my husband, I think he would. Yes, he would. It's not like he signed anything. Um, he proposed to me in Angkor Wat, Cambodia. It was kind of awkward to be in a foreign country with someone who just proposed to you. And you're going to some tell white him, guy, some random white guy. You know that you've been dating, but still, it's like you know, you're in a foreign country. You're going to say no, and you ruin the rest of your five day <laughs> vacation, which I worked really hard to like get you know vacation. And so I'm like thinking it really hard. I'm like, you know, I really want. You know, if I had to marry someone, I'll marry you. And he's like, that can come out right, you know. So. So poor my poor husband, who's the most patient and loving person I know. But I, you know, and a smart dude who had options. Extremely, he, he had extre- options. Yes, he had a lot of options and um, lots of options. And I, I, I just I made notes on a piece of paper over two or three days of thinking about what marriage meant to me. And I came back with I guess what you call a term sheet. You know, <laughs> I know, I know. It's Memo of, it's of almost, understanding. Almost comical. And the number one thing on there was for me was family. I told him, I said, you know, I know you know me, but to me, I would never love any person as much as I love my father. I love you, but my father is my world, my my center, my universe. And he needed to know that that's how important, this is why I'm putting this down. And that my family is important. I've spent my life taking care of my family, and that doesn't stop when I'm married. So again, that, that sense of, you know, outside of my sense of self. And I would keep my last name when I'm married because I understand in the American culture, you know, they take their husband's last name. You know, keeping my own last name has nothing to do with not loving my husband. It's more, sure, I love my father. Sure it doesn't. Sure it doesn't. <laughs> but, you know, I, I share with you, um, my name and last name is, my birth name is Wynn. And one day, and that day may be coming very soon, that I'll change my last name because of my kids. Because whatever I do and whatever I, the work I've done, I want to make sure that my kids can somehow benefit from it. There's, you know, I don't know, 60 million wins in this world, but there might be only 100 messics. What do you think of that? I think it's, I think it's solid logic. <laughs> if you're happy, I'm happy. You've walked the walk. There's a lot of talk about immigration in the news and you've walked the walk on this subject. What's your point of view on it? It's interesting how Americans talk about politics. I find that most who are talking about it have never left their own city or state. And to have a very utopia view of what the world should be, mm-hmm. you know, but never really experiencing it. I came from a country where Americans are heavily involved in the result of what happened to that country. Fucking it up. Well... Either or, you know. Um, I look at it as, for me, it was an opportunity. But, you know, I'm not an immigrant. I would class myself more of a, of a refugee. What's the difference in your mind? So, in my mind, um, a, the difference between a refugee and an immigrant is when you're an immigrant, you have a choice. You have a choice to immigrate to the country in which you choose to immigrate to. Mm-hmm. When you're a refugee, you don't have that choice. Um, your country in one way or another is taken from you or your living situation is taken from you and you now have to, by force or by because of survival, not emigrate, you know, go to another country. So I was a refugee. And I spent... You know, and this is with my father serving in the war. And I spent two and a half years 
living in random countries just to get to my final destination of the U.S. And even then, that was an extremely hard journey. Once we got here, we weren't given U.S. citizen, you know? We're given a green card. More like, it's called the alien card, to be honest. Uh-huh. And, and we worked. I worked. I didn't become a citizen until I was 18 years old. So, you know, today I, I'm a contributing sort of mem- I mean, member in terms of taxes and whatnot. I give back to the system more than I've ever taken from it. And I'm, I'm proud to, to be a contributing member. But, you know, I have my views about immigration. I don't, I, I think what that... Should the po- what, what should immigrants do? What's the, what should the policy be? Should people be allowed to come to the United States with an open door? Well, you know, we talk about this a little bit. Um, we but should. All have. these people weren't there when we talked about it, so that's why I want to talk about <laughs> it. Again. Well, like you said, you can't have an open bar and free entry. Mm-hmm. You have to have one or the other. To me, we need immigrants in this country. There are jobs that some of us don't want to do. There are or skills don't know how to don't do. Don't know how to do, or there are skill sets. That others are better off than us. Yep. And if you were an entrepreneur and you were hiring, you're hiring not based on someone's ethnicity. You're hiring based on their skill set. And a lot of times, that skill set is not someone, you know, who actually lives here. But with that being said, there is a process in which how all of this happens. That process needs to be followed through. There is no shortcut. There shouldn't be any shortcut. Mm. And it's just. For those who have been waiting, for those who have been there, it's just not fair. You are an entrepreneur, and among other things that your family does, you run a, a restaurant business. When you hire employees, what do you see? Are you seeing qualified people who want to work? So, you know, I, I came from the startup sector. I worked in medicine and technology for a while. And it's only been the last five years I own a restaurant, and I only... I own one because I wanted to one day open my own franchise and start my own restaurant. The mm-hmm. best, like, figured the best way was to actually take someone else's franchise and try it out. You know, ride their car and see if I like it. Right. So when I'm hiring, it's it's really tough because, you know, this work ethics is just not there. I'm really sorry, and maybe it's because it's the minimum wage sector. I've never really worked in this demographic before, so it's it's tough. It was a big, it was a hard learning curve for me. Um, I've just never worked with a group of workers who are just not motivated. Motivating them became hard. And and also, I wanted to help them. I really, honestly, really wanted to help them. And it's meant to be a stepping stone. I've always had this this talk to with um, people. I said, you know, minimum wage, raising the minimum wage is just, it's, you know, it's not because I own a small business and I'm saying this. That minimum wage, just because someone gets a 10% in wage increase, at the end of the day, their cost of living just going up by 15%, you're still negative five. You can't just raise the minimum wage and thinking you're helping everyone because you're not. The bracket that the state comes in to help families did not get raised. It's still $1,800. If you earn under $1,800, they help you with childcare. You're in above that. You start having to pay. So these are real numbers. These are real costs that politicians and, and sometimes voters don't think about when they, when they make those choices at the poll. You're a practicing Buddhist. I am, yes. How does that influence the way you think about money or possessions? Very much so. So my father thought, it's going to be funny, that I have two paths. If I continue down the path I was, very entrepreneur, very, he thought that I can be a leader of a gang and 
you know, wouldn't think about it twice. He says, I have that sort of like fearless factor to me. Uh-huh. So he wanted to put some religion, some, you know, something to ground me. So he figured Buddhism school was, was a good place to start. I went to Buddhism school for 12 years. And in the beginning, I had, I had a hard time. I had a hard time sitting still and breathe, learning how to breathe. I'm like, what is this? And it was, it was just really tough. And, you know, when I was trying to, and as a student in government, I was ASB president, did all this stuff. And they're like, you know, you're Buddhist. It's, it's, you're not supposed to be trying to accumulate wealth. It's about, you know, it's about letting go. It's about, I'm thinking like, no, in life, you just survive. You, you need money. I mean, you think this temple can be built because you have no money? You know, if someone donates, they have to have money. To me, like the world evolves around money. And here they're telling me, no, you but, know, it's but, about simplicity. It's about this. It's about, it was a big clash of, a big clash for me. But as time goes by and I learned, so what Buddhism did for me is um, they taught me to meditate. Um, it taught me to live in the moment and to focus. It also taught me, you know, I have a great sense of empathy, but it even brought that out more. To this day, I do a lot of uh, philanthropic work with my children mm-hmm. i did that before them but i believe in giving back in more ways than one so that so buddhism does a lot of that for me mm. but it keeps me calm because i'm normally not a calm person <laughs> <laughs> i can see that a little firecracker well, you're talking about the intensity with which you want to chase money how do you define financial security and do you feel financially secure today so for me because i um i came from nothing um it's Probably they probably don't. Nobody really wanted to negotiate with me because I negotiate from position I have nothing to lose. So um, financial stability, it's you know, it's nice to have. It's nice to for me. It's being able to go do what you want, buy what you want without thinking about it. Mm-hmm. We're not quite there yet because maybe it's in, it's ingrained in me. I always think about it. Will you ever get there? Because if you're not there now. <laughs> what what do you want that you don't have? I'm not sure I would ever give, get there. You know, uh, recently there was a lottery, super lotto. I'm sure you guys remember. It's almost a billion dollars. And we joke about what would happen if you win a billion dollars. You'd want another billion. N- well, yes. But for me, I, I you know, they're like retire. I'm like, what's retiring? Retiring is being able to do what I want to do which without thinking about how much I'm going to get paid for mm-hmm. doing it. Mm-hmm. So that to me is retirement. But You know what the world needs? Another comedian. Oh, you should join us. Need another Paul Ollinger. So do what you want without worrying about money. Right, without thinking about it. And to be able to provide, for me, my my dream is, you know, in my country, in Vietnam, when you get hurt, when you get in a car accident or you get sick and you show up to a hospital, you have to pay before service is done. Mm. So unlike here, you get hurt, you show up to hospital, they're obligated to treat you before they even ask you what kind of insurance you have. Over there, it's not the case. So I've, I've traveled there um, many times, probably been to Vietnam 40, 50 times, lost count. But one of the things I've, I've also done when I'm there is I always go to a hospital and I buy all these medical vouchers. And I would show up to the ER room and I would listen in on these conversations and I can tell who is in really dire need, and I would just hand them mm. like hundreds, hundreds of dollars, which to them is millions and millions of dongs worth of medical vouchers for them to use to get that service. I would love to just, you know, sit there and seriously do that all day long. Yeah. But, you know, so yeah. those are, so to me, like, I don't know, I don't know what financial independence means. I don't have to worry about a bill. My house is paid off for, my kids, my kids are secure and they can go to whichever college they want without having to think about, should they get, you know, can they earn a scholarship? Can they, yeah. Is that you know? Is that an option? 
what do you want them to take away? Do you want them to understand everything about your past? And how do you want that to inform what they do with their lives? I think for my children, I definitely don't want them to, I don't want anyone to ever have to go through what I go through. With that being said, I would do it all over again because it made me become the person I am today. And as parents, our job is to protect our children. And I think, you know, that's innate nature as a mother to protect your children. We live in an area and it's like, live, for them, it's like living in the bubble. I want them to be happy, happy kids. That's my number one concern. I also want them to have a sense of purpose and gratitude. I want them to always be grateful for what they have. I want them to always try their best and never give up. So, you know, those are the kind of things I want to instill in in my kids. I mean, more more than that, but those are are sort of my basics. How do you do that when they're coming from a a place of, I mean, great parents, but a place of affluence? Well, I try to expose them as much as possible. I'm very open about my upbringing. I'm very Mm -hmm. open about my experiences. I've taken them last year, you know, I've taken them a lot of road trips. I've taken them down to, you know, it's very, people thought it was crazy. I took my kids down to Mexico, Baja, California for on a road trip. Took them down for seven days. We stayed at a different kind of accommodation each day. They were not all comfortable. We were stuck in a little tiny apartment in the middle of nowhere. We were stuck on a farm for a day. I take them to orphanages more often than not and tell them a little about the story and then come there and having them play, you know, my kids love soccer, love sports, and would bring buy would buy them soccer balls, and the kids would bring them there. Every single Thanksgiving, we would do Thanksgiving in a bag where my kids would actually try to raise money. For, you know, we'd spend some of their money to buy things, and they would put these bags together, and we would go and we hand it to families. They physically actually hand them to the families. So, you know, I tried. Um, I would take them to Vietnam, have them volunteer. Um, I want them to, you know, to show them what real life is because one day when that happens and if they chip and fall, which they will, I want them to be able to get up. I mean, you will fall. This is what I tell them. I say, you'll fall, you'll fail. Something bad will happen. But don't use that to, to keep you down. You need to know how to get up. And it's important to me as a mother to provide them with a toolbox, with all the tools I can possibly think of to, you know, that they can be exposed to so that they can pull out, through, as they're living through life, pull those tools at different stages of life and use that just to make it through life, just be happy. Right. You know, and, and it's hard because, and I guess for me, I, I was given a great box of tools by my father, and I want to give those tools to my kids, and, you know, right. and I try. Yeah, so. hard-won tools, hard-won for sure. I'm not sure if I'm doing it the right or wrong, but I'm trying my best, and, and they know that. They see wealth, and I I deprive them on purpose <laughs> all the time. In what my, way? How do you do that? You know, they get an allowance. My kids, for however old they are, I have a 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 4-year-old. They get that much money a week, every week. And they divide into three buckets. They it's A third of it goes to giving, a third of it goes into their savings, and a third of it goes into their spending. I tell them, I would give you... Whatever you need, I will buy it for you. If something you want, then it's something that you have to, you have to work and you have to, you have to get. So my daughter, for example, loves horses, really loves horses. She is obsessed with horses. Each horse riding lesson is sixty dollars. Can I pay for it? Sure, sixty bucks. I mean, it's a lot of money, but I can pay for it. But I chose not to. I said, "Mommy will pay forty dollars, and you pay the other 20. 
And $20 to her is a lot of money because she's, at the time, nine years old. Nine times four is $36, and she only gets a third of that. It's $12. Yeah. It's two months before she can get one hour of horseback riding lesson. But when she gets on that horse, every second on that horse, it's it's golden. She, like, loves it. So, yeah, so I, I deprive my kids on purpose in that way. But if they need something for school, I'll buy it. But if they want something, they're... And I tried to help them raise money. They, I said, you know, you have $12. Go make some more money. They want to sell lemonade? Fine, I'll help them. We put a lemonade stand together. They sell the lemonade. At the end of the day, I take my cut. The so, sugar costs this. The yeah, lemon costs this. Right. Yeah. The next time around, they learn. They said, we're going to get free lemons. going to ask the neighbor to give us free lemon. I'm like, okay. So they learn. They, each time, they learn. Yeah. yeah. And even like picking, you know, stuff from our garden and selling. I asked them, what's the price point you're going to sell it at? Yeah. And I let them drive that decision. They said, well, $2. You have to, how do you get that price? So we go through the whole thing where we go to the market, we find how much these things cost at the market and how much they would sell it for. Yep. And I'll tell you, well, one of my sons says, I'm selling it more than the market sells it for. Yeah. I asked why. Because, mm-hmm. well, I'm cute. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> it's, nice. you know, so, okay, well, people will buy it from him because I'm like, why would a customer want to buy it from you and not buy it from like Whole Foods or from Trader Joe's or from Ralph's? He goes, because I'm cute. So, that's you know. That's funny. That's funny. I like so, it. So that's how well, I try to teach about money. picked up some of your good traits. I like it. All right. Thank you, Gianni, for sharing your story with us. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, San Diego Comedy Festival. We'll see you next week on Crazy Money. Thank you again, Gianni, for sharing your story with us. I really enjoyed talking to you, getting to know you even better after all these years. Thank you also to Broken Drift Productions, who produces the San Diego Comedy Festival and provided the venue and the engineering help to make that recording. Bill Blake, thank you guys. Really appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you again at the next festival. I'm not going to say what it is, but you know what I'm talking about. Hey, folks, if you want to find out more about me, you can go to my website. It's paulollinger.com. Ollinger is spelled the traditional way, O-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. Send me a message. Tell me what you'd like to hear on upcoming episodes or suggest guests that you believe would be compelling. Also, if you want to hear me do stand-up comedy and you don't have the time to fly to where I'm going to be, dates on my website, paulollinger.com events slash events. You can listen to my comedy EP, which is like an album that's in better shape than an LP. You can Google Paul Ollinger alive on the Upper West Side. That's the catchy name of the EP. And it'll take you to wherever you like to consume comedy through your ears. Popular destinations where you might find it include iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, etc. Oh, also... Very flattered to see that it's shown up on some Russian pirating site. So clearly, I've made it. Hey, thanks again for joining. I really appreciate you sticking with it. If you like us, go to iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. Give us a rating. Throw us a nice review. I sure do appreciate it. See you next week.